Well, the, the songs that we sang this morning hold a lot of meaning for me, and uh, I think they're very fitting for, to, for today's message, and I think at the end, hopefully, you will, you will see that. So, I hope that you have been joining our study into the seven churches of Revelation, because I, I know I certainly am. I've really enjoyed it. Um, going to Turkey and, and visiting these places um, made them come to life in a new way to me. Helped me to understand um, the things that were going on there and just put, put flesh on the bones of those words that we read. Because these are, these are real letters that we're reading. These are real letters that Jesus wrote to real churches, real people in real places. It's not some abstract thing. These are are real places that had real churches. These messages, these messages are for those that were not living up to his standards. And unfortunately, unfortunately, some things just never change, do they? And because of that, these messages are for you and for me and for the church today, too. Because we see ourselves, we see ourselves in each of these churches. Same sins, the same attitudes. It's just a mirror that we hold up and we see a reflection of ourselves when we read God's Word. So far, we've, we've looked at the churches of Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamum, and Thyatira. Ephesus, the, the church that had lost its first love. Smyrna, the suffering church that had received no rebuke from Jesus because they were doing things pretty well. Pergamum was the, the compromising church. Thyatira was... They were the tolerant church that tolerated sin in its church. Today we're going to finish our look at the church of Sardis, the dead church. A church that looked promising from the outside, but on the inside, it was actually dead. Um, church of Sardis was built on a, let's see, there it goes. It was built on top of that Acropolis right there, 1,500 foot tall, and you can see a little bit of the remnants right there. We talked about the sheer, sheer side, side walls there, and it made it almost impregnable. It soon outgrew that mountaintop uh, area and expanded to the hilltop below, but the old city remained a refuge in times of danger. However, it was defeated two times because they were overconfident and, and fell asleep. It had quite a reputation for being a wealthy city. It was once the capital of the Lydian Empire. It was the first place to mint gold and silver coins. And the expression riches Croesus refers to this place because the king Croesus was there and, and he was filthy rich. And so it refers to this place. It wasn't a, a terribly religious city. Um, they had started a temple to Artemis, which never finished it, so they just couldn't really be bothered, I guess. So they weren't terribly religious. They also had the largest synagogue of the time. It was pretty big for the time. They had built it right in the middle of the city. Um, by the way, you see the person right there in the middle with the yellow coat? That's Courtney. Courtney and her yellow coat were out conquering the world, so um, <laughs> so that yellow coat made her easy to spot everywhere we went in Turkey, so uh, what's that? You couldn't get lost, no, no. Um, the church was probably founded as a result of Paul's time in Ephesus, we talked about that a little bit. So that's a little bit of a, a refresher, I mean I went into uh, quite a bit more detail a couple weeks ago. Um, so that's just a little, little refresher to kind of remind us of the city and the place where this was happening. Again, a real place, a real city, a real, a real church with real people there. And so this letter was written to these people. I mean, so you imagine, you know, if the Lord was to write, Lord Jesus was to write a, a, a letter to the church at Faith Chapel, right? You know, and if the Lord tarries and, you know, 100 years from now, 200 years from now, somebody finds this letter to the church at Faith Chapel, what's it going to say, right? And so people would probably come out here and they'd find the foundations of this building and then they would 
learn all about what was happening here. Well, that's kind of what we did, kind of figuring out what was going on there at that, that city, this church. So let's go ahead and read this letter that Jesus wrote to this church. So Revelation uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Open your Bible. If you don't have one, it's on page 1312 of the Pew Bible right in front of you. So this is what the Lord Jesus says. And to the angel of the church of Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what, remain, what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We're going to continue our a familiar outline that Jesus uses in each of these letters. The, he, he starts off with an introduction, a, a, a characteristic about the author, about himself, how he wants to be viewed. He, he gives a commendation, um, the good that he sees that's happening at the church. He gives a warning about the problems that he sees. He gives them a, a remedy. He tells them what to do to change those things, to correct it. He spells out the danger, the consequences if they don't, but then he gives hope. He gives them hope, a reward for those that overcome and, and are faithful to the end. So we looked at first the author, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Again, how he wants them to see him, how he wants them to view him, why he's writing to them. The seven spirits of God refer to the fullness of the Holy Spirit. He is the one who sent the Spirit to these churches to bring about the transformation in the lives of those that are there. The seven stars are his messengers, the the pastors of each church. And he depicts himself as the one who is sovereignly working in his church through the Holy Spirit and through godly leaders. Commendation. Unfortunately, there is no commendation to the believers at Sardis. Christ has no good words for them because they're not doing anything well. They, they may have thought they were a living, an active church, but according to Christ, they're really dead. The warning he gave, he says, I know, as with all the churches, the Lord declares, I know your works. Regardless of how spiritual we think we are, he knows the truth. He knows the truth. And he issues a warning about what he sees there. They've been relying on their reputation. They had accomplished a great deal in the past, and they were now just coasting. They were resting on those past successes and no desire to go forward and do any more. That led to other problems, overconfidence. They began to believe the hype that, they, that the people were saying about them, and they became overconfident. And that led to the city being defeated twice in humiliating fashion. They were, they were caught sleeping, and the enemy snuck in completely undetected. And their, their overconfidence led to laziness. They began to, to build that, that huge temple to Artemis that I showed just a minute ago. They never completed it. Well, the church got lazy too. The church did the same thing. It, it started building quite a church. They started out really well, began to build quite a church there. But then the fire went out. Fire went out, its leaders, then its members. Then it just got lazy. The church there had not allowed the Holy Spirit to complete its work. They only grew to a point. They stopped. We looked last week at, at uh, what the Holy Spirit, the work that the Holy Spirit does in the lives of believers. We saw how, how 
laziness leads to complacency. That's what we looked at last week, complacency. Webster's definition of the word complacency is a feeling of being satisfied with how things are and not wanting to try to make them better. Jesus rebuked them because they were not living up to their reputation. The church had become lethargic. They saw no need to even try harder. They had not had to endure persecution like many of the other churches had. It had been easy for them. It had been so easy to plant this church. And other churches wanted to be like them because it had gone so well and they were able to make so much progress so quickly. They had become complacent. We looked at the dangers of that complacency in the Christian life. It means, it means that you're not growing. It means that you're not growing. That puts you in danger of being ineffective and unfruitful, indistinguishable from the world, just a, a superficial believer. It can cause you to, to live off your past victories like Sardis did. They had a breakthrough victory. They built this great big church. I think they're all set now. Got this great big church and no more worries, no more struggles. We got it all, all taken care of. It's all good now. Instead, we should be looking to the next battle that lays ahead. Complacency hinders our prayer life. We don't spend time connecting with the power source that keeps us pointed in the right direction. The only cure to complacency is a passionate pursuit of Jesus Christ. Complacency and laziness typically go hand in hand. That laziness and complacency had infected the church of Sardis. That caused most of the church to soil their garments Garments often symbolize character in Scripture. We looked at that last week. They had gotten dirty by, by brushing up with the world, right? You hang around it, eventually, eventually some of it's going to rub off on you. That can happen spiritually too. The, the church of Sardis had not just rubbed up against the world. They eventually brought the world right into the church, we looked at that last week. Here's a close-up of that picture I showed you. That's the altar in the church at Sardis. And I don't know if you recognize what's on the side of that altar. That's a Roman eagle. A Roman eagle. They had brought Rome into the church. They brought Rome into, church, into the church. This was a church in name only. Sure, they had a building and they were going through the motions and they had people there. But the spiritual life was long gone. They brought the world in. The danger, Jesus warns this church, if they don't wake up and repent, he will come like a thief in the night. The city had felt untouchable on that mountaintop before they only woke up to find that they, weren't, they were plundered and destroyed. The soldiers who invaded brought destruction. But Jesus was going to bring punishment. But he says, all is not lost. Not all is lost. There was a remedy. And that's where we pick up today. The remedy. Christ addressed the, the faithful remnant of the true Christians at, our, at Sardis. He says that there's a few there that haven't soiled their garments. And he addresses them because there's, there's no point in talking to the others. There's no point in talking to people who are, who are already dead. If their church was to survive, it desperately, need, desperately needed life. And Jesus lays out the remedy for this impending danger in verses 2 and 3. And he gives five commands for the few that remain alive, even if just barely. This first thing he says is, wake up. Wake up. Be on guard. Be on guard. A, con a continual state of watchfulness. And that will keep us from being caught off guard and overrun by the enemy. If you're watching for it. The enemy of your soul will search out an attempt to find a way to your heart, just left unguarded. A couple weeks ago, we talked about that secret entrance at Sardis, how that soldier, so relaxed, so confident, he fell asleep and his helmet fell down and 
rolled down the hill. The enemy was watching. That soldier came down, retrieved his helmet, and then he went back in through that secret hidden entrance, right? Who, you know, fully confident, we're untouchable. The enemy watched. Aha, now, now we know how to get in. Well, you have an enemy that's watching too. You have an enemy that's watching too. And they see, they're watching for those little cracks, those little openings. He goes, ha ha, I know how to get them now. I know how to get them. He says, wake up. Do not be seduced by the ungodly ideas and ways of the world. That's really the point. Instead, remain spiritually vigilant. The lack of spiritual watchfulness can be costly. The moment that you think that you are spiritually safe and secure, the moment that you think, I got it all set, I'm good now. Man, I am good. That is the time that the enemy is going to strike. And you are most confident because that's when you're going to let your guard down. The believers of Sardis had not become lax overnight, but over time, over time. And that can happen to each of us. Think about abortion. That's been a big thing here recently, right? Abortion became accepted too in the church. Not just in the world, but in the church. Little by little. You need to wake up. You need to wake up and be alert. This is a a call to every believer, every church. It's time to wake up. Do you not recognize the enemy that is all around us? Do you not recognize the enemy that is all around us? 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. We're in a war. These, these songs that we sang this morning, I don't know if you notice a theme. We are soldiers in God's army. We need to be watchful. We have an enemy that is seeking to destroy us, seeking to overcome everything that God is doing in the world. He's the God of this age. He knows his time is short, so he's going to take everyone that he can with him. The city had become sacked twice because the watchmen fell asleep. They thought they were impregnable on that mountaintop. And that led to deadly laziness and complacency. Jesus warns the church of Sardis and the church today, there is no time for indifference. There's no time for indifference or going with the flow. Who am I to speak up? Ah, you know, that's not what I would do. Yeah, you know, I know they're kind of a little off over there, but, eh, you know, what do I... No. Wake up. Wake up. The true believer needs to look at what's happening in their church. In their church. Evaluate the situation. Confront sin and error. Get involved in changing things. Make a difference. It's the current state of your church today. What's the current state of the church universal today? Wake up. How about you? What's the current state of your heart and your attitude? Are you watchful? Are you just a little complacent? Gotten a little lazy? Letting your guard down a little bit. If you've grown complacent and lazy, it's time for you to wake up and then strengthen what remains. Jesus says the situation was not completely hopeless if if they caught themselves in time. They could strengthen what remains even though it was about to die. 
Christ knew their deeds. He condemned them as not being complete. The church may have looked impressive from the outside, but they were just like that temple of Artemis. Incomplete, unfinished. Had started out well, but then stopped. There was no spiritual motivation or power behind them. The letters to the other churches, Jesus condemned, or commended deeds of love and faithfulness and obedience and, and perseverance. Sardis didn't appear to have any of these. They had, allowed, they had not allowed the, the Holy Spirit to finish its work in them. Christ exhorts them to fan into flame the dying embers that remain. Fire had grown cold. Jesus was warning that those that were not completely spiritual dead yet, but they were not spiritually safe either. There was still a glimmer of spiritual life in that church. There were some who remained faithful and alert who had not stained their garments, still were producing spiritual fruit. These believers were alert and, and they were ready for the enemy's attack, but they were on spiritual life support. They were just barely burning. And unless they acted upon the warning to wake up, they would find themselves without hope, unable to recover. Is this you? Is this you? Have you let the flame die out in your life? Did you start out strong, but along the way it's grown colder? You stopped putting fuel on the fire. You started out really good. You were spending time in God's Word and around God's people, and man, you were seeking after Him, and you were putting more and more logs on that fire, and it was, it was burning hot. 30-foot tall flames. Curtis was telling me about him and Nate burned off some brush out, out to Nate's property. 30-foot tall flames. Putting those big logs on that fire, right? On fire! Somewhere along the line you go, well, that's a big fire. That's good. We don't need to do any more. Eventually what happens? Eventually that fire is going to die down unless you stoke it. Unless you put more on it. Have you disconnected yourself from the life-changing power of the Holy Spirit? Jesus says, wake up. Wake up. Strengthen what remains before it dies too. And then he says, remember. Remember what you had received and what you heard the believers in the church of Sardis once believed and were spiritually alive, but, but something happened along the way. The spiritual flame that once burned bright in their hearts had grown cold. There were a few glowing embers, but the flame had all but died out. The believers in Sardis had been given a gift of faith, a gift of salvation, but some had allowed that faith to weaken, to grow cold. Christ was telling them to, they needed to get back. You need to get back to the basics of faith. Remember, remember what you had heard. They needed to return to the teaching that had changed their lives. Once again, make that their central focus. Remember, remember when you had that great big fire going? 30-foot tall flames? What was it that had you so excited for the Lord? Remember that. Remember. Remember the teaching that changed your lives. Again, make that your central focus. Not social justice. Not environmentalism. Equality. World hunger. Or, or a myriad of other things that we can use as a substitute religion. These believers needed to reaffirm their belief in Christ, in sin, in salvation, in sanctification. Back to the basics. The lack of, of spiritual conviction or enthusiasm can cause you to become spiritual weak, lazy, 
complacent regarding the things of God. You can become lazy and complacent and allow areas of, of your heart to be open to sin and to false teaching. Become enamored, enamored with the teachings and the values of the world. It's sense of morality and fairness and, and it's good causes. Maybe you can begin to follow what appear to be good teachings, good teachings of people that are just outside of the church. They seem pretty good. They can sound very smart. They can make a lot of sense. They can even sprinkle in a little, a little Bible verse here and there too. You say, well, I know they're not a preacher. I know they're not a preacher, but, but I think they're a Christian, though. They kind, I mean, they kind of sound like it anyway. One of, one of the most famous and influential right now on college campuses is Jordan Peterson. He's a Canadian philosopher, a philosophy professor. He's an author. He's a lecturer. Travels all over. He is, he is famous. Talk about on fire. He's on fire. It's very popular amongst college-age people right now. He's been very outspoken about conservative matters. He's defended the church. Many things that the church stands for. It's made him a cause celeb. He's, he's suspended from Twitter right now. Because he reacted to some, some things that we would react to as well. He says, well, I'm not backing down. And that's made people go, yeah, yeah. But Christianity is really only a good moral example that he uses to support his own pragmatic views. He's not a Christian. He's not a Christian. He's very, he's very vague about it when he's asked, why are you a Christian? Well, you know, what is Christianity? And he goes off into his philosophy and stuff. He has a huge Christian following, huge Christian following. He speaks just enough Christianese to keep people enamored with him. He even talks about picking up your cross. That's a good message. That comes right from our Bible, right? Pick up your cross. Except for Except for he means the hard things in your life. Pick up the hard things in your life. It's not about following Jesus. It's about following you. Young people are, are following after him, not aware of who he really is. They're enamored with his, his wisdom and his insight, and they feel that they share it too. We get it. We're smart too. Dr. Phil, maybe, maybe you're not a young college kid and you're enamored with, you know, with Jordan Peterson, but maybe, maybe Dr. Phil, that's your, that's your guy, you know. Let's see what Dr. Phil has to say about this problem. Or, you know, go back a few years, Oprah. Oprah had all the answers, right? Name it. What person what person do you elevate as your source of wisdom and knowledge? They've got the answers. When we begin to listen and follow the worldly wisdom, eventually it can overtake and, and drown out the voice of God. We begin following after them and their wisdom instead of God. And they may just put just enough God in there to make us think it's okay. Without knowing any difference, we can become spiritually weak, vulnerable to attack. Over time, your heart can become cold toward God's truth. The enemy, the enemy has climbed over what was once an impregnable wall of faith because it was left unguarded. And your laziness and your complacency, cracks have developed. You didn't pay attention. You began to believe the hype, the lies. You leave the door open for the enemy to sneak right in. 1 Timothy 6.20 Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. 
need to guard the deposit. Avoid that, what the world calls knowledge. And that's not just from the world either. It's not just from the world. It's not just those people. It's, it's many in and from the church that can lead people astray. If you don't pay attention and you're not on guard for it. Often, often it's because it fits with what we want to hear. It's what we want the message to be. Or what the world says it should be. We want to be relevant. 2 Timothy 4, 3-4 For a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth. Wander off into myths. When we forget the truth of the gospel, we can begin to follow, believe things that are clearly false. We can allow the enemy in, begin to corrupt our thinking and beliefs and make it more acceptable to the world and and others. It's little by little. Little by little that creeps in. Begins to affect our thinking. Eventually, eventually you can get to the point where that's how how you can have a famous TV evangelist. And I'm not going to call him a pastor and you know who I'm talking about. I've talked about him many times. Go on, Larry King. Do you believe Jesus is the only way? Well, who am I to say, Larry? Who am I to say? He's the only way for me. Maybe there is more than one way to heaven. Jesus says, no. No. Remember the truth. Go back to the basics. If you can't even get that right, go back to the basics. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Remember what you received, what you heard, and then keep it. Keep it and repent. Once you wake up to the truth of the gospel, once you remember what you were taught, you need to repent. Begin to obey the word of God in your heart. See, these believers had slipped away from the teaching and the compromise with the world. So they needed to remember. They needed to return to it. Keep it and obey it. Repent for their past failure not to. See, orthodox theology, apart from obedient lives, will not bring about renewal. See, it's not enough. It is not enough just to believe the truth. It's not enough. We must obey that truth. We must obey that truth. We must keep that truth. We must repent of our failures to do so. With remorse and sorrow, the believers at Sardis were to confess and turn away from their sins. Only a change of heart could save them from punishment. That means taking God's word seriously. Taking God's word seriously and purposefully obeying it. You have to be purposeful about obeying God's word. You have received and heard the truth, he says. You have received and heard the truth. You know it. You know the truth. You're not ignorant of it anymore. Acts 17.30 The times of ignorance God overlooked. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness. We must remember that we are in a spiritual battle even now, even today. And it may be fierce sometimes. Sometimes it'll be really active. Other times it's going to quiet down. But we should never become lazy or complacent. We need to wake up. We need to strengthen what remains. We need to remember what we were taught. And we need to repent and keep it. For those that do, Jesus offers the hope that they have to look forward to. 
the hope. Not every believer in Sardis was being condemned for complacency and compromise with the world. He, he points out that there are some who have not soiled their garments. There are some who are being faithful, who are trying to live for Christ in, in this dead church. We're in this dead community, this dead culture. And he offers a, a threefold hope, a reward for those who remain so. He says, they will be clothed in white. They will be clothed in white. And he will never erase their name from the book of life. He will confess their name before the Father and the angels. Now I'm going to look at these a little bit out of order, but that's okay. This is the book of life. He says he will never blot their name out of the book of life. We don't have time to get into this right now, but this does not imply, as some have argued, that, that you can lose your salvation. That if you mess up, Jesus is going to go, huh? Yeah, they, they messed that up. Scratch. That's, that's not what this is re- referring to. They wrongly take a, a promise and they make it a threat. Scripture repeatedly assures us that those that are in Christ are his forever. And, and just, just a few. John 10, 28 through 29. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Romans 8, 38 through 39, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Charles Stanley so aptly put it, does it make any sense to say that salvation is offered as a solution for our sin and then turn around and teach that salvation can be taken away because of our sin as well? No, of course not. Our salvation is secure. Once we're in Christ, we're, we're always in Christ. No, this, this book symbolizes God's knowledge of who belongs to him. Practically every city of that day kept a roll, a register of its citizens. If they did something that was really noteworthy, it may be written in that book in, in gold. But if someone died or committed a serious crime, their name was erased from that register. Having one's name removed meant losing your citizenship. Losing your citizenship. When these messages were written, Christians were under the constant threat of being branded as social rebels, even stripped of their citizenship if they refused to recant or, or denounce their faith in Christ. It could be put out. Jesus says, you know, the world might write us off for not being get-along people, but, but he guarantees that he will never write us off. He will keep our name firmly before him. One day he will welcome us into heaven where our citizenship is forever secure. He will never blot our name out. Our citizenship, citizenship is forever secured in heaven. And he says, confess before the Father. The Lord personally reminds the overcomer not only of the safety of his heavenly citizenship, citizenship, but of the special acknowledgement the Lord himself will give before the Father and before his angels. He will affirm that they belong to him while he keeps his promise from Matthew 10.32. Matthew 10.32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. What could, be, what could possibly be more humbling, more meaningful, more hopeful than the Son of God saying, Father, all your angelic hosts, this is my child. Could you imagine being introduced to the Father that way? Come before the throne. Father, let me introduce my child. I also imagine it could be 
conclude those words all of us should long to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter. Enter into the joy of your master. Both of those are some amazing hopes. Promised rewards for those who persevere to the end. Should fill us with excitement, amen? Are you excited? You should be excited. Your citizenship, if you are in Christ, your citizenship is secure in heaven forever. Nothing, nothing will ever remove that. No matter what happens in this life, your home is forever secure. And he's going to introduce you someday, personally introduce you to the Father in front of the heavenly host, everyone, proudly saying, this, I died. I died for them. They're, they're mine. Say hello. Can't imagine anything more exciting than that to look forward to. But there's one, one last visual for me that I had to save for the last. It's an amazing visual. To be clothed in white. To be clothed in white means to be set apart for God. Cleansed from sin. Made morally and spiritually pure. White garments represent purity and holiness. He promises to clothe them in brilliance of eternal purity, holiness. Revelation mentions white robes several times. The Laodiceans were told to get them to cover their shame in in chapter 3, verse 18. We're going to see them pretty soon. The martyrs waiting for justice in 611 are wearing them. So do the great multitude from every nation in chapter 7 and 9 and and 13. The armies of of heaven are clothed in white in chapter 9, verse 14. The white of these garments symbolizes the purity that comes from being washed in the blood of the Lamb. Sin and evil soil garments, but Christ can cleanse us from those. Isaiah 1.18, come now, let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, I will make them white as wool. He will cleanse us from every stain that we've accumulated in this life. In pagan religions, it was forbidden to approach God, God, with dirty clothes. You had to prepare yourself before you went into one of these temples. You had to clean up before you came to the temple. But Jesus tells those that are dirty to come to him. He, he will clean them. He will cleanse them. He will give them new clothes. White garments were often worn for festive occasions too. Like maybe, say, a wedding. Faithful Christians will wear theirs the wedding feast of the Lamb. Amen? He's going to provide the dinner clothes. He's going to provide the dinner clothes. But there's another there's a one, another wonderful piece of imagery here too that I love. Jesus tells the faithful remnant here to keep or guard the truth. That word, keep, to guard. Tere, from teros. It's a military word. It's a military word. As if, as if this truth is going to be attacked. The truth attacked today in this world? Indeed it is. We are called to guard this truth. Guard this truth. Conquer to the end. Then he says to those who do, you will walk with me in white robes. That was a great picture for the people in Sardis. For us too. See, in that time a a victorious general would lead 
what is known as the Roman triumph. If he came back from a great victory, he would lead this great procession into the city to conquer the victor, to come, full of his officers, soldiers, captives, and the, and the spoils of war. And all of his followers would be wearing white robes, celebrating this great victory of battle. Jesus is saying, one day he will be proved to be the victor. We will walk in that great victory procession. One day, if you remain in Christ, you will walk in his great victory parade. Revelation 19.14, and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him. That's the imagery Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 2.14. But thank God he has made us his captives and continues to lead us along in Christ's triumphal procession. And through us spreads the aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Captives. That's us. That's us. He came to earth. He defeated Satan on the cross. We used to belong to the God of this world. We used to belong to him. But Jesus defeated him. We are the spoils of that war. As believers, we're we're not forced to participate. We're willing captives. Are you a willing captive in the Lord's army? Willingly part of the parade led by the victorious, resurrected Christ. True Christians are victorious in Christ over sin, death, Satan. When we talk about Jesus' victory on the cross and the freedom that it gives, we help spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. And whether people find the aroma to be a pleasing reassurance of their salvation or an odor of their defeat, this unseen but powerful fragrance is present everywhere that we go. As we follow Christ, we declare his resurrection victory, the victory that makes salvation available to the world. As we get ready to celebrate the 4th of July, Independence Day, day that we celebrate freedom. I, I, I don't know what greater freedom than there is than what's available to us in Christ to be freed from the bondage of sin, Satan, and our evil desires. If you're in Christ, you are both a captive, a soldier. You are the spoil of war from his victory over Satan. And then you were drafted. You were drafted into his living army. You're drafted into his living army. You need to raise his cross. Raise his cross. So wake up. Wake up. Strengthen what remains. Fan those flames. Remember what you were taught. Repent. Keep it. Jesus says that those that persevere to the end will march with him. Those that persevere to the end will march with him. Onward, Christian soldiers. Onward. Marching as to war, the cross of Jesus going before us. Amen? And the saints go marching in. <laughs> I love that song. That, that song has special memory to me as a kid growing up in a, going to a one-room church. It used to be a one-room schoolhouse. Laid out very similar to this, but the entrance was on the side. And there was a door on this end and a door on that end. And the main doors were outside there. There was a little vestibule there. We sing this song. We got up. We got up. And the guitars got up. And the cymbals came out. Guess what? We went marching. 
And we would march down the aisle and across the front, through the door, out the entryway, through this door, across the back, down the aisle, and round and round we would march. Excited. The saints come marching in. I want to be in that number. I want to be in that number. Do you want to be in that number? Do you want to be in that number? Doesn't sound like it. I want to be in that number. Victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. I'm part of the Lord's army. You are part of the Lord's army. And if you remain steadfast, you persevere to the end, what great hope that you have to be able to march with him victorious one day when he returns. Ho, ho, ho. If you don't want to be part of that, man, we need to talk. The saints go marching in. The saints go marching in. Lord, I want to be in that number. When they crown him Lord of all, they crown him Lord of all, I want to be in that number too. A great victory. He has won for us. A great victory we have in him. Conquer Persevere to the end so you can be part of that great victory parade. Saints marching in. I'm going to be in that number. Are you going to be in that number too? Are you? Let them know. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you again grateful, thankful for your word. Lord Jesus, we think the great victory that you have already won. You have already won. You have already defeated the enemy. All that remains is that great victory parade when you return. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us to learn the lesson from this church. This church that was dead. There were a few that were still alive. The flame may have died out, but there was a glimmer of hope. May we fan that flame, those dying embers, until it's it's a roaring fire burning within us, that we would have an excitement, a fervor, a zeal for you. May we look forward to joining that great victory procession. Oh, we look forward to that day. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us in the power of the Holy Spirit to persevere and conquer to the end. We look forward to marching with you as we celebrate your great victory. Give you thanks in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.